Hello and welcome to another episode of Empire Sports Talk. I am your host, Roman Gennaro, and I'm rocking the Braves gear today because as we record this, baseball season started this past Thursday, and so we are back. It's my favorite time of the year. If you don't know this already by listening to the show, I am a self-proclaimed baseball obsessive, and so this is my favorite time of year. Baseball season is back. We've already seen several web gems. Early in the season is not shy on on the great plays. The other night, Hunter Renfro in the outfield in the opener for the Angels made an over-the-shoulder, almost no-look catch in the outfield that amazed even Shohei Otani. And if you can amaze Shohei Otani, you're doing all right. So baseball is back. As we record this on Saturday, the Final Four begins tonight with San Diego State taking on FAU, followed by UConn taking on Miami for the right to see who plays in the championship game on Monday. Still no news on Aaron Rodgers. It seems more and more likely that that deal is going to fall apart between him and the Jets and the Packers because the Packers are in no rush to give the Jets what they're looking for. And so the deal has not been closed. Yet, Odell Beckham Jr. has been seen speaking with Jets head coach Robert Sala in recent days. So will potentially adding Odell Beckham Jr. create a sense of urgency for New York to get the Rodgers deal done? We'll find out. Not too much is going on else other than baseball starting in the Final Four. So I want to get you immediately out to our interview with former Cubs prospect and minor league baseball player Donnie DeWeese, who is currently rehabbing an injury and hoping to get back in the game. But he took the time to sit down with us last week to discuss his baseball journey and the new rules that affect baseball this year at the major league level. He's been playing with them for a few years at the minor league level, and he had some very interesting takes for us on the current rules and one rule that he would like to see implemented soon. So let's get you out to that interview right now. Here it is. All right, this is Empire Sports Talk. I am your host, Roman Gennaro, and I am honored to be joined by Donnie DeWees, Major League Baseball prospect. How you doing, Donnie? Uh, I'm good. Thank you for having me on. So you and I go go back a little bit, um, all the way to the University of North Florida, when you were lucky enough to play there, and I was lucky enough to be a student there who was at every single game. You couldn't get rid of me. So what I want to start with, for those that don't know, you were one of the best I'll say athletes that UNF has ever seen. And for those that for those that are hearing this or hearing about you for the first time, I want to run down some of the things that you accomplished while you were while you were in North Florida Osprey. So some some you might know, some you might not. So you hold a bunch of records. It was almost staggering when I, when I went back and looked at it. You hold the record for most hits in a season, most runs scored in a season, second most triples in a season third most home runs in a season. You have the second highest batting average in a season, second to only Drew Weeks. Uh, yep. you, which I'm sure you knew because you and he'll, he'll hold that one over me forever. Teammates. Yeah. Uh, and you're, and you came up just eight points shy of that, by the way, his record, I believe was 430 and yours was 422. Um, yeah. Five hits in a game, which is tied for the most. You had three triples in a game, which is the most seven RBIs in a game, which is tied for second, which I found unbelievable. Because in 2015, Keith Skinner had nine in a game. Um, I remember that game. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know if you knew this, so you can hold this one over Drew Weeks a little bit. You have the highest career batting average in North Florida history at 382. So he might have the season mark, but you have the career. 
Yeah, I've got I've got the long haul on him. And and you have the highest slugging percentage, and I believe the highest on base percentage for both a season and career. So, but that's not all. Your 2015 season was one of the best by I'll say any athlete at North Florida. When I looked at these numbers and I was there, when I looked at these numbers, I, 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 I couldn't believe it. You played 60 out of 60 games, which is worth noting because when does that ever happen in sports anymore? Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you hit 422, which as we said, is, is second all time. You, you, you had 106 hits, which is a record. You scored 88 runs, which is a record. You had 12 doubles, eight triples, 18 home runs, 68 RBIs, 188 total bases, which is a record, 30 walks, only 16 strikeouts, and an impressive 23 of 26 in stolen bases. What what do you remember about that 2015 season? Honestly, man, it was just uh, such a great group of guys, great coaching staff, such a good environment, and uh, you know, everything aligned. And, and the funny thing about all that is, is I think 12 games in, I was hitting like 200 or 212 or something like that. I was just like, oh, man, this is not going well coming off of uh, playing up in the Cape and, and doing pretty well up there. So starting to get some like eyes on me for like real eyes on me for the draft for the first time. And um, so I get back from there and, and, you know, 12 games in, I'm like, man, something's got to give. I got to turn this around. And then at that moment, I, I remember it was a, a bus ride home. I'm not sure from where, but uh, I just kind of, I flipped the switch. I figured it out. And then the rest of the season was just kind of like a blur. You know, every game felt great. We were winning, just positive energy coming from the dugout at all times. You know, we had people always just cheering and loud and getting in the other team's head. And uh, I, I, Honestly, I think it was just uh, we were out there having fun, and it wasn't just me that had a stellar season. You know, you go one through nine in our lineup, I think everybody essentially hit over over 300, which is something that's spectacular in itself, you know. And the fact that we didn't make it to the NCAA tournament was <clears throat> a heartbreaker. But, it, it, yeah, I mean, that was just a fun team to be on, bunch of athletes and, you know, guys that knew how to play baseball and have fun at the same time, so – you know, credit goes out to Smoke Laval. He, he coached us very well. He was pretty laid back, but he was he was hard on us to get the things that we needed to get done done. And it's just that, that's really what I give my credit to. And you know, I was I was hard hard at work, and I, I put in the work that I needed to do. Trained hard in the weight room. Trained hard with uh you know, out on the field, and it paid off. So it, it just the the whole scenario was great. The 2015 season was a, was a special one, not just on the field, but for but for me as well as, as a viewer and a supporter. But when I was looking up, you know, the records to compile your your for this interview, I noticed that your teammates Trent Higginbotham and Ryan Roberson were also on the RBI list for most in a season, and it was and it was 2015. So I'm guessing that had a little something to do with with your breaking the uh, runs the single season runs record because 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 you were likely on base for them for all that yeah I mean having them behind me absolutely I think I hit in the two hole most of that year we had Kyle leading off and then Trent and Robo behind me you know I get on first base it's like probably gonna score if I uh, maybe steal second and then they're probably gonna get a hit or hit a homer or something like that I mean it was just ridiculous the the output that they had in the three, four hole. And I could rely on them every time I got on to find a way to get me in. I was speaking to uh, Joe Wilbruda <clears throat> the other day 
about about playing with guys like Robo and and I I told him that what I remember of his UNF career was was that he he never seemed to get out. He always seemed to get on base when it, whatever the team needed him to do, he was on base. And he and he talked about playing with Robo that he felt like Ryan Roberson never got out. He said he said you say that you feel like I never got out. Ryan Roberson legit when he went up there, I felt like he was never going to sit back down. Yeah, yeah, and I I mean. Joe was the master at hitting it where they where, where they were not. He he yeah. was he would find the hole in the field and hit it there. He didn't hit any uh, a lot of homers. I don't know if he had any homers or not, but he, um, he had a few. But he knew that wasn't his strength. Yeah, but he was the master at hitting that line drive up the middle or a little bit backside, just where people weren't and getting on base and letting the the big guys do the rest. And then Robo, yeah, it seemed like. Every time he got up and, you know, you know, Robo, he's already got a big head, so I don't want to blow it up anymore. But, you know, he was, he was smash baseballs and I mean, pretty much every time. He was really, really talented. There, there was one season, I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2015, but the season kicks off and just right away, Robo cannot miss. It, it, it was almost like the Terminator out there. Like he, yeah. he always, you know, brought, brought his bat with him when he came to the field, but but one of these years, I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2015, he literally could not miss. I think it was 15. Yeah. And it, and, and it went for like two straight weeks where I think he didn't he didn't make it out. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like this man is a machine. Yeah. Like, you, you talk about uh, Robo and probably one of the most confident people I know. You could throw a roll of Chapman out on the mound and Robo would still go up there with the mentality that he's going to hit Homer. And I think that's where he got a lot of his success from is just having that mentality of always thinking he's going to have a positive outcome one way or another. And and this is funny. I remember uh, competing against him and just like a, a mess around home run derby. And I went first, we did best of five. I had four out of five out of the park. I'm like, ah, he's got no chance. Guy goes up and hits five out of five, and I'm just, you know, you tip your cap to him, and it is what it is. Uh, the guy just was so confident in himself, and I think that's what carried him through is having that ability to trust in himself. Speaking of speaking of um, competitions, I, I I was talking to, I believe it was Joe also, because I've, I've done two interviews uh, this week, and your name came up in both of them organically as to okay. like how how good of an athlete that you were like i i told joe that i thought he was one of the best hitters i'd ever seen and he brought up your name and obviously he's he's working for the yankees in the amateur uh scouting and and and, and video department um and he said we're looking for the next donnie deweese that's and then i talked to bo beach the the basketball player and he brought up your name you know you sometimes you don't know if 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 uh, other student athletes are paying attention to 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 fellow student athletes but he brought up your name and 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 how how ridiculous of an athlete you were so your name's come up twice yeah well i mean props to them too they're they're both quite the athletes as well and i i believe bo's still playing correct he's, he's bo is yes he he he's in serbia right now he's in belgrade serbia okay. speaking of 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 contest you were talking about the home run contest with robo i believe this was also 2015 or 2014 that it seemed like you and corbin olmstead were going tit for tat the entire season 
You know, if you hit a double, he hits a triple. If you hit a home run, he hits a home run right after you. And it was just like for the entire season, it seemed like what it it was that, uh, what was that? Uh, Kevin Garnett and Mia Hamm commercial back for Gatorade years ago, where it was anything you yeah. could do better. It felt like you two doing that the whole season. Well, we were roommates. So there was already that, you know, in-house kind of rivalry and competition. And we were always back and forth, kind of like brothers would be and, <laughs> you know, just all over each other all the time. And so I think that was part of it. Like, you know, we would just trash talk back and forth to each other. You know, uh, I remember before the season, I think we were in the cage talking about it. And, you know, I'm, like I told him, I'm going to hit 20. And he's like, well, I'm going to hit 21 or 22 or something like that. I'm like, all right, we'll see, man. And just back and forth all year. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. What did he end up with? I think it was like 15. I think so it was, he, I, I think it was somewhere, somewhere around there because he was not above you on the, on the list of home runs in a season and you had 18 that year. So, so I believe yeah. he had 15 or 16. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it just, uh, he, he was a solid athlete, had the coordination and the incredible thing about him too, is he was our lights out closer, you know, right. you put him around in the ninth inning and it's game over. They... And, and I was just going to bring that up because it always surprised me. And I used to talk about talk, uh, about this with Evan and Sinelli, um, where we were surprised that he didn't really get a chance at the next level because not only was he a, a, a really good hitter, but, and, and I stand by this, he, he may not have thrown a hundred miles an hour, but he was one of the hardest throwers I've, I've ever seen. Like his, his, his fastball may have come out of his hand at 89, 90, but it looked like it, it looked from the stands, like it was going 147 miles an hour. And it's like, how can anyone hit that? Yeah, I mean, 2015, the numbers he put up at the plate and the numbers he put up on the mound, you put that somewhere in the top 10 rounds, to be honest, For from my my opinion. I mean, the I, only I thing working against that. him, I think, was uh, just the athleticism side of things. But it was it, it, he doesn't look like he's super athletic, but the kid's super athletic. And I think that worked against him in a lot of ways, which is really bad, just like – that the uh, overall outlook of professional sports is they look at stuff like that. But the kid worked hard. The kid had the talent. You know, he was strong. He was fast. And, I mean, he's not going to be stealing 10 to 30 bags a year. But the kid, he moved a little bit for a bigger guy. He was 240, 250 pounds and squatted 600 pounds and hit balls 450 feet, throws 90 to 94 off the mound with a lights-out slider, a below one ERA. Uh, shocked me that he didn't get an opportunity and yeah. you know yeah. i think yeah. he absolutely deserved it something i always pay attention to like you mentioned he wasn't like the fastest guy out there but there is a there is a and sometimes i see people not pay attention to this as much but there is a, a distinct difference between slow and a bad base runner for instance yeah. like, like i know i know freddie freeman is not the fastest guy, but he's a really, really good base runner because there's there's speed and then there's 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 intelligence to know the situation, and I I feel like Corbin was a really good base runner. He may not have been the fastest guy, but but that yeah. that's not everything. And for how big he was, you know, he wasn't slow. You he can move a little bit. No, I'm not going to take that. It's just, but given the statistics he had it's hard to not give that guy a chance. You know, if I'm a scout, I'm going to put him on the radar. This guy's going to hit 15 homers hit. I don't, I don't know what his average was. 350, 340, three somewhere in there. And it was, it was good. 
It was good. Lights out, you know, almost two Ks per inning with a below one ERA as the closer for a team that goes 45 and 16. I'm going to give that guy a chance, you know, did, whether did, I take him in the 20th round or whatever, but that, that deserves a chance. That was 2015 before we've seen, but before we got a chance to see a player like Shohei Otani. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that if Corbin did that now, did that in, if he was doing that in college this year, would it be a different story now that we've seen players like Shohei Otani doing both at a high level? Do you think? I don't see why why not. I mean, Shohei is a obviously a freak athlete. You know, throw 102 off the mound with you know, hit 30 to 40 homers a year. Uh, I mean, just that's ridiculous. But um, I either way, you take somebody whether you don't believe in a two-way two-way player like you you take them and you test out both sides of it see which one works out more for you you know you have the opportunity you can you can pitch in short season or rookie ball or whatever and hit at the same time like it's not the end of the world like you guys been doing it his entire life it's not that like who was it uh degrom was was a shortstop in college and he and he turned into one of the best pitchers the game has you know yeah you just never know. I mean, so, but when you put up numbers like that and you do everything you're supposed to, it's hard to swallow the pill that you don't get another chance at the next next level because you did everything you were supposed to. You worked hard. You trained hard. And then just to be rejected the opportunity is kind of depressing, I would imagine, for him. That's, I absolutely think he deserved it. So back to you. Um, as as we mentioned, your, your 2015 season was definitely – the stuff of legend in Jacksonville. Um, but I looked at the stats and I thought you were named a 2015 Golden Spikes Award finalist that year. And for those that may not know, the Golden Spikes Award is basically the Heisman Trophy of college baseball. And I'm thinking to myself, I know he's at a small school, but how did he not win? And then I went and I looked at the other finalists that you you yeah. were against. And it's a who's who of MLB All-Stars. I'm going to read this list real quick. Andrew Benintendi, Alex Bregman, Dansby Swanson, Scott Kingery, Ian Happ, Carson Fulmer, Phil Bickford, DJ Stewart, and Donnie DeWeese. And that's just a few. That's not even all of them. So so what so what is it meant to you at that time? Obviously, Andrew and Ben Benintendi ended up winning the award in 2015. But what, if anything, did it mean to you at that time to be a to to be a finalist with guys that are are, are making their mark at the major league level now? You know, just being around those guys, and I was around a lot of those guys in the Cape the summer prior to getting drafted um, and seeing that talent level and, you know, realizing that they're not any different than I am. You know, me keeping up with them and competing with them at the the top tier summer league showed me, it really opened my eyes to like, you know, I have just as much potential as any of these guys. And, you know, I never have been one to read into like, awards and stuff like that I've, I've always kept my my head down and just kind of been driven to do what I got to do to get to the next level yeah, it, find find my way it, it it shows on the field for sure yeah um, so I, I honestly like being there and being part of that achievement was an awesome feeling but I didn't even realize like I I, I didn't think too too much into it it's just like a something uh, I re- I look at and I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, I did pretty well, but then move forward from there and keep my nose down and keep going to the next level and keep going and going. But 
that's um, a good outlook uh you you said that you saw these guys like the season before in the cape cod league was that like a moment for you because it sounds like it was a moment for you where you were like oh yeah i i'm as good as these guys was that the moment that you realized you had a legitimate shot at at the next level oh yeah yeah i um so everybody in that league i felt like i was just as good as if not better with the exception of possibly ian half uh, I looked at him when I played with him in the in the Cape, and this kid was just hitting both sides of the plate. Perfect baseball build, six one, something like that, just two hundred ten pounds, smashing baseballs every at bat, and certainly gave me my exercise in the outfield when I played against him. So, you know, I, I looked at him and I'm like, this guy's got it, got it all. He hits from both sides of the plate for power, contact. He's fast. He can play infield. He can play outfield. He's got a right-handed glove. So. Um, that was one guy I looked at and I'm like, he's going to be a top 10 pick. And what do you know? I I think he went nine overall. It's it's interesting you bring him up because wasn't he, weren't you guys teammates at one point? uh, Very briefly. Yeah. Briefly. briefly. Yeah. And Eugene, he got called up fairly quickly in the Cubs organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, so I mean, and you're not the you're not the only recent UNF baseball player to be mentioned in the in the Golden Sport in the Golden Spikes Award uh, finalist conversation because Drew Weeks the year before was uh, was was in that and he had an amazing season that he holds the record for hitting 430 in a season I believe that was that year so mm-hmm. so, so UNF may not be known to a lot of people out there as far as as far as baseball but they're starting to churn out some some some, some talent I know Frank uh, German is is with the White Sox now. So they're there. And then Brian Baker is obviously in the majors as well. So, so UNF is becoming kind of a lesser known factory for, 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 yeah. for talent at the next level. Did, uh, is Frank with the White Sox or Frank is with the White Sox. Yes. He, he spent okay. last season, I believe he, he broke, he was drafted by the Yankees. He broke in with the Red Sox. He, yeah, he was like the first trade between the Yankees and Red Sox in a long time or ever. Yeah. I think. yeah. He, he broke into the league with the Red Sox and then, and then I believe he became a free agent like in the off season and is now in, in, in camp with the White Sox. So we'll see if he breaks camp. So we've talked around your college career at this point, but like, what is one, what is like your favorite memory of playing college ball? Probably winning the conference championship for the the, the season conference. Uh, you know, we had a huge celebration. I believe it was at Kennesaw. I'm not 100% sure where it was, but that was such a, a an awesome experience. You know, we all dogpiled on the pitcher's mound and a uh, big celebration in the locker room. That was a really cool experience. And it, honestly, it's just about the group of guys that we did it with. And just, you know, we formed like a little family there and we were all super tight knit. That's something special. You know, I, I, I don't know what the environment's like at UNF right now, but, you know, back in 2012 to 2015, that was such a tight knit group of guys. And that freshman class that we had come in in 2012 was we all just hung out all the time. And that, that was something special. But that that memory of us winning it in 2015 was big. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun. I feel like it's something that 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 can't be overstated because you hear a lot of managers and a lot of players say, "Oh, we have a special group of guys that care a lot about each other." And I know this is not always the case, but what what difference do you feel it makes when there's truly that 
that chemistry and that bond with, with an entire team. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely makes the world a difference. You know, these guys have each other's back all the time, not just on the field, but off the field. And, you know, we're hanging out and we enjoy each other's company and, you know, we're calling and texting each other, whatever, going and doing things, exploring the campus, going down trails. And that's, that's something that's, that correlates to the field. You know, you have like a brotherly love. So you bring that from off of the field to the field. And then, you know, when you're competitive competing with each other, you just have each other's backs throughout the whole thing. And that's, uh, that absolutely goes a long way. You know, it's not, it's not an individual sport at that point. It's a, it's a team sport and, you know, baseball is a team sport. You need everybody on the field to, to do their part and everybody wanted to. I saw a quote uh, one time recently and it said, surround yourself with the kind of people who, who will be right behind you if you ever charge the mound. And it sounds oh, yeah. like, it sounds like this was that group of guys. Yeah. You, you better believe. And, and Honestly, we probably instigated that several times from the dugout. And, you know, <laughs> we got a bunch of people that are chirping the entire time. We got Nick Miller, Jaime, we got Robo, we got Baba. Everybody's chirping from the dugout nonstop, whether they're in the game or not. And, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think if there was ever an issue, everybody would have uh, would have been there. I don't know if you were there at the time. You had to have been there, <laughs> I think. And I and and Evan and Sonella used to tell me that he couldn't really hear what was happening in the stands when he was on the field. I don't know if that was the case for everybody, but there was one incident against Mercer. And I want to say you were already there. So 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 let me know if you remember this. Mercer comes from Macon, Georgia to us. And Friday night, for whatever reason, their fans came fired up. Not at you guys, but at us. You know, we're sitting over on the on the on the first base side and they're over on the third base side and they're they're chirping. And I believe they won the Friday night, which was not great for them because because they just fed into it more. And they were telling us, go home, go to bed. And we're like, we are home like this is Jacksonville. You guys came to us and and and, and it spilled over into Saturday and we're chirping back at them. They're chirping back at us. And then we win on Saturday and then we walk off on Sunday. It was like a tight game the whole way. And we walk off on Sunday and the whole weekend it was, I was telling Joe about this cause I could, I, I swore he got the walk off hit, but I couldn't remember, but, it, but we, but we walk off on Sunday because I thought there was going to be a brawl in the stands between us and Mercer's fans, because for whatever reason they came to fight on Friday night. Uh, yeah. they, came, they came to fight us and I don't know why and it felt like it was close to happening and so for us to walk off to win the series on Sunday you know they're they they do a 180 and they turn hard and they are leaving and we're waving goodbye you know we're like see ya you know yeah and soon after they left the conference yeah I mean that that almost fuels us uh, especially that group of guys we had we hear our fans standing up for us and their fans chirping back and forth and I don't know if their team was built the same way at Mercer but uh, I'm sure they were they I, I think they had a pretty competitive team that year um, but you know we were fueled by that I'm sure and you know we went out and left everything on the field but when we hear our fans cheering chirping back and forth and yelling at each other it's like motivation for us too you know it's it's an outside factor but you know, we hear that too. And we want to, obviously our fan base is important to us. So we want to do everything we can to 
back up our fan base too, not just back up the team, but back up everybody involved. Because I'm trying to remember exactly when it happened. Does that ring a bell for you walking off uh, on Mercer at home on Sunday? Yeah, I, I do remember something of that nature, and I'm pretty sure you're right. It was Joe. I remember that celebration now. Because he, because he had. I don't think he had a memory of that, which is shocking to me because I was asking him what his favorite me- memory was. And he said, oh, oh, it was walking off of, of on so-and-so senior year. I believe it was my only walk-off hit that year. And I was like, I don't think it was. You know, like, I feel like he walked off a couple times. But yeah. I, I, do re- I do remember him walking off. I think it was a base hit off the middle. And, you know, we all met it went somewhere between first and second towards yeah. the out. So, so I'm sure I'm sure you you on the field were not aware of what was happening in the stands but it was about it it was about to come to blows at the moment yeah. that joe walked it off which was like the ultimate <laughs> eruption of we got you go home it was one of those things yeah that, that that was one of my most vivid memories and then a few years later i'm sitting because because you remember i used to get there like an hour before i i used to like sit and watch y'all like bring out the like take the tarp off and do the whole thing and I'm sitting there and I and, and I didn't believe in sunscreen at the time. So so I was pretty red from the day before um, on on my legs and on my arms and on my face. And and Richard Miller, the voice of the Ospreys, happens to walk by as he's going up to the booth. And he says, hey, he says, hey, you're you're here every week, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, 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 I am. And and he goes, do you want to come and do come and do the pregame show up in the booth? And I said, Absolutely. And I think this was, I think this was a few days after Smoke had won his 600th career game. I think this was like the week of, and and he asked me, he said, "What's your favorite memory of all the, of all the games that you've seen?" And I brought up that that Mercer weekend of them trying to give us crap, even though they were visiting us, and th- so it was it that was definitely memorable to me. So uh, it's it, it's good to know that you remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, from, from UNF and from your whole baseball career, you've done a lot of traveling, but then you've spent a lot of time in minor league baseball where there, where there's a lot of smaller towns and a lot of kind of more, it's a more rural environment, so to speak, than college and definitely than pros, I would say. Um, so what's your, what's your best travel story from all the Oh man. Um, baseball. Yeah. So I've been a lot of places all over the country and um some of them are bigger once you get up to like double a it becomes more like bigger cities you know not obviously not like la and like miami and stuff like that but you know they're they're pretty big we go to nashville and uh, reno we go to salt lake city uh, a bunch of big cities and we're based out of des moines with the cubs there um but honestly my favorite memory of travel i i went in high school with you triple sa it was all included paid for we had like several tryouts for uh the the national team and i got to go to the czech republic twice and that was such a fun experience you know being 17 18 and just going over there and playing it was uh a bunch of grinders you know everybody's trying to get their scholarships or get drafted out of high school and uh one of the big names you might know is wyatt matheson he was on that team uh yeah there there was quite a few of them over there that were uh really talented baseball players and you know, just that experience to have and experience a different culture was a lot of fun for, for me. And awesome. for pro- professionally, oh, man, um, 
Honestly, it's, it's hard to say professionally because it's so busy. You know, you're playing seven days a week, traveling every three or four days on an airplane or on a bus, whatever it may be. And everything just kind of blends together. You're just showing up. You don't really, some people go out and experience the town and go out and have a couple of drinks. But for me personally, like I was playing every day and it, it's hard to play seven days a week. And, you know, with practice and games, you're out there, honestly, six, seven hours whether you're in the cage, you're out on the field for BP, infield, whatever it may be, playing the game, you're exhausted by the time you get home. And so for me, going out after my legs were always jello, I, I never really partook in that. So um, I think I went out one time in Nashville. Uh, I went out in Reno to the casino, played some, gambled a little bit and did that. But uh, yeah, it's just such a grind. It's it's hard to pinpoint one, one experience in professional baseball of, of travel. So, so I don't know if you're much of a food guy, but you've been, you've been in a lot of these environments so you've been around a lot. What's the best, what's the, uh, what's the best like food concoction you've come across? To be honest, um, we get fed okay, but we get the best meals when a big leaguer rehabs with us. So with the Cubs, I, they do a pretty I, good job. On the I've heard that. Stuff. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, we'll get like Ruth's Chris, we'll get steaks, um, chicken. There, there's, uh, we'll get Outback every once in a while. Um, so, I mean, we've had some really good meals. It's hard to pinpoint just one. You know, every time a big leaguer rolls through AAA and does a rehab, they buy us the the spread. And that's kind of like a, I think it's an unwritten rule. But, you know, you rehab with a team, you buy the spread if you're a big leaguer. Yeah, I'm sure that's an exciting thing. You know, like if you're if you're like like a like a double A AA or triple A player, and you know you're 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 grinding down there, and then say you know Bryce Harper shows up for a couple of games, or uh, or Ronald Acuna, I know was here in Jacksonville for a four game stretch with uh, Gwinnett, and a bunch of people went out to see him. So I'm sure even for even for fellow players, it's it's pretty exciting to see to see a big leaguer make a couple of rehab starts right next to you. Yeah, it's one of those things that you kind of just keep your distance, take a little note. But, um, uh, you know, it's almost just like we're on the same team. We're part of the same family. And, uh, you know, we all see each other in spring training, especially as you get older and you get towards the upper levels. Some of your friends make it to the big leagues. I got several guys that I played through the minor leagues with that are on the big leagues now. And, um, you know, it's – that you look at them more as like friends and, you know, it'd be different. I haven't really had an experience where I've had somebody like Mike Trout or any, obviously Mike Trout's not on the Cubs, but like somebody with a big name like that roll through and, and rehab with me. But um, it's definitely cool. I mean, a lot of the guys that are up there now, I, I know a lot of the guys that are in the big leagues now. So um, consider us more friends than, you know, somebody to, admire i guess I, I don't know it's hard to explain that one like, no it's cool, i i, I get that for sure yeah yeah have, have you ever been starstruck before by a player by anyone um hmm. off the top of my head i can't think of any i'll tell you the only time i can think of it really happening to me was when i ran into john smoltz at a uh at the tim tebow golf classic here in jacksonville like for because that was so he was such a big part of like the reason I love baseball and like my childhood that mm -hmm. like that like I was standing in a crowd of people and by and by the end of the day because you know like you're you're standing 
you basically pick pick a hole and and you're you camp out to see the people come by and so by the end of the day you know the people around me knew that like i knew john smoltz was there and i was super excited so by the time he gets there they they like push me to the front and i get up there and i'm and i almost don't know what to say so for me i think i think meeting john smoltz was that moment uh but i didn't know if 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 you have ever experienced kind of that whoa like there's so and so right there um yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's really a cool experience to be on the field with some of these guys. Uh, like, I've played with Mike Trout. I've been on the same field with a lot of these guys. I've backed up a lot of the big league games in spring training. So I've been around a lot of big names. Um, I think from my perspective, I, I see it a little differently just because I'm competing to get to uh, – and. I'm competing to get to the same spot that they're at and right. I don't see myself as less than them. So I see them as not necessarily like competition, but kind of competition. So I, I'm, I, I feel like I can get to where they're at. So I don't necessarily look at them as like superheroes. There's some guys no, obviously sure. that are a little different than yeah. um, outside of the norm. Like if, you know, I, I did admire Mike Trout. You know, he's one of my favorite players to watch. Just he's very humble. He's driven. He's quiet, but very successful, you know. And then obviously, like, looking at Shohei Otani and playing against him, that's pretty cool, to, you know, to have one of the – you play with two of the league MVPs. Obviously, they're probably the best baseball players in the world, and you're For standing sure. on the I, same field competing I, against I, them. I would say so, yeah. Yeah, and you're just on the same field competing against them. So it's like – that's pretty cool. I mean, those are cool experiences that I'll remember forever for sure. But while I'm doing it, you know, it's just like I'm so hyper focused on playing and getting in the game and doing my part to help the team. It's like I can't be distracted by the fact that, you know, there's these superstars out there. For sure. That, I think that's a bigger reason as to why I, I'm not superstar struck by it. Yeah, I think it I think it goes back to what you said about kind of that year in the Cape Cod League where you where you kind of looked around and that was that that was a moment for you where it was like, oh, I, I am a peer. I am I am one of these guys. Maybe that's maybe you've taken that mentality all the way through it sounds like. Um so so as a player and more specifically as a hitter, um obviously all of all of sports all the professional sports are going through sweeping rule changes right now um what are your thoughts on some of the rule changes that baseball has seen in in the last couple of years between uh universal dh the extra inning base runner rule the bigger bases the pitch clock what what, what are your thoughts on some of these i'm all for it I, I think uh the universal dh is great i don't think pitchers should be putting their body at risk as a hitter Personally, you know, they are drafted as a pitcher. They are competing as a pitcher. Essentially, you know, you send them to the plate. They're an out. They're an easy out. Uh, and I'm not saying that to be mean, but they're not being paid to hit. And, you know, one side of the league has a DH and one side doesn't. So only half of the league is really at risk of getting injured. And some of the pitchers, you know, I've, I've seen people come real close to being hurt. Uh, running from home to first as a pitcher you know they try to bust it out you know especially at the triple a level or double a where you know they incorporate the pitcher hits as well they don't have the dh and uh, the national league side of that so you know i i just 
from that spot, I think it's a, an injury risk. Uh, the bigger bases, I think it's safer. Uh, the pitch clock needs a little modification, I think. Um, there needs to be some leeway when uh, a hitter swings and fouls the ball off. You know, the pitcher gets the ball back, steps on the mound, the timer starts. You know, he needs a little bit of time to reset. I've had that happen a couple times. But, you know, if you take a pitch, you don't need 20 seconds to just walk around and right. kick your bat and all that. So I think the pitch clock's good. It took about 30 minutes. I had that in, yeah, this past year, you know. Our games were flying by. So, so, so you've box. had experience at the plate with the pitch clock. Yeah, yeah. I've only had one issue with it. You I was know, and that say, was after a foul yeah. ball, and the pitcher stepped right back on the mound, and I only had eleven seconds before I had to be in the box, with both yeah. feet, uh, both hands on the bat, ready to hit, and that was uh, that was an issue. But that's where I I think it needs addressed. You know, I, but I don't think you need to walk all the way around home plate in between every pitch. No, for sure, for sure. I think. There, like you said, I think there are a couple of tweaks that I would like to see be made, and 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 I think it's good that they. Initially, I didn't like it at all. Initially, from the outside, I'm 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 a baseball purist. I didn't like it at all, and and it's one of these things where I watched it, and 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 I think there's a little bit of confusion from the viewer standpoint of, like. You know, you have 15 seconds, and then the and then the pitcher gets ready, and then the batter has until eight seconds to get in the box, and then if if the if there's still eight seconds on the clock, but the batter's not in the box, it's it's a it's a violation. I I I don't think they've made at least early in spring training made a great job of making that clear to the viewer that that is what the violation is. But but I th- I think the biggest issue for me is, and and this is why I'm glad they're testing it out in 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 minor league or in spring training um and and in minor league baseball for the last couple of years is personally you know early in spring training we saw games be, get decided by you know and yeah the first week a, a, a braves game ended in a tie on a full count pitch and <laughs> and so my personal thoughts is i would be fine with it if a it was turned off in the ninth inning and or extra innings so that it doesn't actively because to me it's like a fifth umpire right it's so so like you're not really supposed to know it's there and if you do it's a problem um so so for me personally i'd like to see it turned off in extra innings um or the ninth inning and if 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 a player say gets brushed back or a player hits the deck because the ball you know came close to them the pitch clock should be turned off for the next pitch those are just my modifications yeah. that I would like to see. There's got to be feel. That, that's what I, I. That's what I mean by like. There's got to be some consideration for the situation. It, it can't be, you know, the same ordeal. Like if he fouls the ball off, or you know, he's running down the first base. Like you can't as soon as he steps on the rubber start the clock. There's got to be implications right, exactly. to where there's some some leeway and some grace. Like you know, feel from the umpires or the, the person running the clock up top, like right. you can't rush the hitter. Like you can, you know, you, you can tell him to like, don't mess around, like get back in the box and get ready to hit, but you can't get a guy to get back in the box, catch his breath and get his bat ready within 11, 12 seconds to, to hit the next pitch. It's just, there's gotta be some feel and I think they'll figure that out, but yeah, exactly. I'm all exactly. for it. I'm all for it because, you know, when it takes 20 to 30 minutes off of a game, 
and you're playing 140 to 160 games a year, that saves a lot of time. And, you know, at the end of the, the year, you're a little less fatigued. By the end of a baseball season, you're absolutely just toast. I mean, oh, for sure, for sure. You go home and you don't do anything for a month. You just rest and recover, let your body rebuild itself. Um, I, I, I think all the rule implications are good. And another one that I think would be okay, I'm an advocate for would be um, automatic umpires. You know, I know a lot of people are against that. Yeah. But I've had throughout my career, if I were to go back and look at every at bat and break it down as to like what's been called a ball or a strike on me. You know, I've had a lot more balls called strikes on me than strikes called balls. We have some pretty advanced technology that's very impressive. So I can go back and look at the previous day's game footage, and it will tell me the percent called strike. And I remember one game, It was this was AAA. We had bases loaded. We were, I, I think it was tied, or we were down by one or something like this. 3-2 count, I'm batting. And I get called on a ball that's probably four to five inches off the plate and I go look at it the next day and it was a 0.1% called strike and he rung me up on it and I almost got thrown out of the game over it and then I got ripped by our our hitting coach and I'm like what am I supposed to do there now you know I did everything right I mean other than striking out but that's not on me you know if we have automatic strike zones like it gets called a ball like it should be and that the, the whole ordeal like people even within baseball, they talk about it. And then they're like, oh, you won't like it when a, a slider comes in and it hits that bottom of the zone and then bounces in front of the catcher. It's like, well, did it cross the knees? It's hittable. It's a strike. Right. That's my whole outlook on that. Uh, and, you know, human error doesn't have to be a part of the game because at the end of the day, human error affects the athlete, not the umpire. It does affect the umpire. Like, from a standpoint, they could get – they're not going to get moved up if they have – a bad strike zone or they make bad calls all the time. But as a hitter, you know, they don't look into, you know, what happened here. They don't have like a statistic, or at least I'm not aware of that. They go through all the game data and break down like, Oh, this should have been a walk and not a strikeout. So let's adjust his average. Like we don't get that advantage of adjusting our statistics based on the human error of the umpire, For you know, sure. whether it be, Say if we're out at first, I, I know several times bang, bang plays at first base when I'm busting butt down the line and it's bang, bang, and I'm safe and I know I'm safe and they ring me up. They're already, before I even touch the base, they're gearing up back here to throw ring me up. And I'm like, right, you know, that's a big difference. You know, 10, that happens five to 10 times a year. That's 10 to 15 points on your batting average. Right. So. It, it's interesting that you bring up automatic umpires and you bring up you know, that you almost got tossed from the game after being after being called out on a ball five inches off the plate. Because as I'm sure you've seen, that game between Mississippi Valley State and uh, whoever it was, where where that umpire held a grudge. Did you, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, they're spiteful too. Yeah, some of them. Not all of them. I'm not going to take away from them. There's some really good umpires out there. But there's some umpires out there that, you know, you tell them that they didn't do their job right or they made a bad call, they'll stick up for themselves and they'll hold a grudge and ring you up the next time too. So, you know, that doesn't have to be a part of the game, and I don't think it should. What? You know, I mean, you're taking away jobs from these guys. They can still be there. You know, I'm not trying to take umpires out of the game, but take away the human error. That doesn't need to be a thing. Yeah, that's, that's my whole outlook on it.
what what are your thoughts specifically on that moment of that that strike two call not being that close and then and then the next one and then because he was showed up by the batter the next one being in the dirt and strike three what what are your thoughts and then and then that umpire got suspended after that so what so what most people think that that is that is an example of like the best example of the need for robot umpires so so what are your thoughts as an obvious proponent of the automatic strike zone or what 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 are your thoughts on that moment in that situation at at a division one level it'd be hard to incorporate that at college level just because of the technology advances and the cost you know at the professional level certainly there's money there to incorporate that um but you know universal i think as you get older the plate gets smaller essentially so college they'll give you a little bit off the plate they'll give you a little bit either way do i think it should be that way no because you're being trained to not swing at the balls that aren't over the plate but it is uh, and i don't know if there's any changing that but uh like holding grudges that that umpire absolutely should have been should have received the suspension you know and probably a fine on top of that too you know uh yeah um, i was having a conversation about it where where you know when the when the when, when, when the strike two comes in, obviously the catcher did a, did a serviceable job trying to frame it and make it look like one, but it was one of those obvious frame jobs where he brings the glove way up and, 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 and the, and the hitter was not happy, obviously. And he, he draws that line in the sand. And, and I was talking with Joe the other day and he said that, that, that Bryce Harper got tossed on for doing just that in the minors. And he said that, that, that the umpire would have been well within his rights to toss him right there. And that would have been the end of it, but, and it would have been, and, and it wouldn't have been a national story, but the fact that he didn't, it should have ended right there and it didn't. And then he said, I'm going, he made it personal and said, I'm going to ring you up no matter what. And then the next ball's in the dirt. O- only Vlad Guerrero could hit it. And he calls strike three. Yeah. I mean, drawing the line in the sand, that is kind of personal because it shows up the umpire. Don't do that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he should have just tossed him. Yeah, or giving them a warning. Holding grudges like that, though, that's not good for the game of baseball. That's not good for anybody involved. You know, you hurt the hitter. The only person that helps is the pitcher. He gets one more strikeout under his belt. Right. But it hurts you, too, because now you're on national national social media across the country, and everybody sees it. So you don't want that look on you. The hitter doesn't want that look on him. Like, showing up the umpire, it's a lose-lose for everybody involved. Going back to to the pitch clock for just one second, um, one thing that we didn't touch on that I would like to get your opinion on. Obviously, the 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 minor leaguers have been doing it for a few years now, as as, as you've said, you you've had experience with it. Um, what are your thoughts on for the, at the beginning for some major league veterans who have not experienced it, the possibility that injuries could increase as a result of of everything being sped up? I don't think that there's a huge injury risk with a pitch clock my whole thing is it's going to possibly affect statistics if you know you're in the box and you're out of breath and you're not ready really the the hitter just needs to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. he doesn't need to waste all the time in the world you know beating around the box and hitting his bat off his cleats and all that you know i mean there's routines like that doesn't take a ton of time but i don't think there's a an injury risk i think it's more of a a statistic risk one so. of the one of the funny stories from from early in spring training was uh pete alonzo and he goes up to the plate and he and he's 
feeling hurried and he's doing the whole thing and he's you know and he strikes out pretty quickly he strikes out three four pitches and he comes back to the dugout and he says i can't do it i can't do it i can't do it i don't think i can do it very next at bat he homers and he comes back and he goes i'm fine so so it it speaks to the fact that baseball is a game of adjustments period and it's like whether it's from one at bat to the next or whether it's from using a, not using a pitch clock to using a pitch clock it's a game of adjustments and and that and that pete alonzo story is in a nutshell i guess mm-hmm. what it what being in the game of baseball even is is just is just going up to the plate ready for what's next um, yeah with any with any new rule changes there's always going to be backlash from some of the players or some of the athletes and um you know, it's just, like you said, a game of adjustments, and that's what it's going to be. You know, they're new rules. You understand them. You know them. Within three to four years, this probably won't even be a topic of discussion anymore. It'll just be, you know, an accepted new rule. And I think um, all the rule changes they're implementing aren't necessarily bad. There's going to be people that don't like them, of course, because they like to take their time. But, you know, from a defensive perspective or – a pitcher's perspective anytime a hitter just kind of moves around the box and wastes your time like you're just standing there waiting and that's kind of how I look at it is if I'm in the outfield I want things to happen you know yeah I want them to happen quick I don't want to wait a minute in between pitches because you're doing whatever you do just taking your sweet time and you know it speeds up the pitchers too because some pitchers like to just take their sweet time and hold right. for 20 seconds like you need to be ready to go like right and i'm all supportive i'm all in on that and that's just it's an adjustment you got to get used to it and i'm sure even as an outfielder in terms of being engaged in the moment you know i i I imagine it's harder for an outfielder you know you're 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 far away from the action you know you're just kind of standing out there and and you know when the the action comes to you when it comes to you so if there's a pitcher or, or or a hitter taking their sweet time in in my interview the other day talked about how how defenses will be more engaged because yeah because you got to be you got to be ready to go you know it's one of these things and and so i imagine as an outfielder that that speaks even more to you as there's as there's more standing around in the outfield than there is probably anywhere else on the field yeah literally uh, we have 20 seconds say you know the pitch clock's 20 seconds if the ball's not put in play you're literally just standing around looking at whatever for 20 seconds. You're just waiting. You, you always need to be ready, obviously, for the pitcher to pitch the ball, but you only need to be ready when the ball is in the strike zone, when the contact's going to be made. You need to be on your toes, ready to jump, go whatever direction it's going to be. You have 20 seconds in between that to just kind of stand around. You know, if you are in one of the corner spots and they hit a long foul ball, you need to obviously get back to your position and regroup and they have a little bit of feel they did in the minor leagues for that. You know, if uh, a left fielder runs all the way to the left field line or the stands or something like that, they give them time to get back before they start the clock. Um, but yeah, I mean, the faster the game moves for an outfielder, the more involved you're going to be, the more concentrated you're going to be. You, you don't have all that time in between pitches to lose focus. Um, I mean, what was it? There was a 14 11 game that went two hours and 24 minutes, I think, earlier in spring. So, I mean, there you go. I saw a quote 
earlier today from from someone on Twitter, and I I want to get your thoughts on this. I I I already had we we've already kind of danced around it, but I want to get your thoughts directly on this quote. It says, "It's wild to me that we're materially changing the way baseball is played and experienced, and the only reason anyone can come up with is because it might make people who already don't like baseball slightly more tolerant of the game length." It's not just benefiting the players in a faster game pace, game speed. You know, the fans don't want to go there and watch people mess around either. Like, realistically, a baseball game should take anywhere between two and a half to three hours. Without the pitch clock, games take anywhere between three to three and a half. So you're adding 30 minutes onto the game. And, you know, the players are, I think, the biggest concern. Obviously, you want to see action faster. If you're watching, you know, for example, if you're watching the Super Bowl, which you know how the Super Bowl is. There's commercials every three minutes. Right. So baseball is kind of the same way. Like if you're you're watching, you want to see the action. You don't watch the game to see 45 seconds in between pitches. You want to see the game speed up a little bit. You want to get the game moving along. You want to see what's going to happen. You don't want to just wait and wait and wait. Obviously, the Super Bowl has funny commercials, so those are okay to watch. But like if you're just watching any televised football game or baseball game and you don't go to watch the commercials let's be honest you're watching you're, you're there to watch the game the more time you have as a from the the owner's perspective or the broadcaster's perspective the more time there is to throw commercial breaks in there so you know the the whole thing going back even a little further to limiting the mound visits um i, I don't know what it is if it's, it's five seven. a game or seven a game seven yeah like, you know, that speeds the game up, too, because every time a pitcher or a pitching coach or a manager walks out to the mound, you go to commercials. So, that being I mean, said, as a I, viewer, as a spectator, you would think that the fans would appreciate it because you're getting to the action faster. You're not just wasting time and waiting longer to see what's going to happen. That being That's, said, I think it's interesting that they put it at seven because I know, like, any less and you're really you're really um messing with kind of the, the strategy that needs to go into the game but i don't i can't think of a game that i've watched where there's been seven mound visits that's a lot of that's a lot unless of unless like the starters getting roughed up in the first i can't think of a situation where you even really come no. close to seven yeah but uh, you gotta have something because i mean having unlimited really it does delay the game but seven yeah seven's very friendly towards the the pitchers and the pitching coaches and the managers it, i think it, that's what you wanted it's interesting hearing your take as a player on these rules because it makes a lot more sense. I think the problem that's being skewed to the public is the way that it's being explained to anyone that's not directly a part of the game because not just in baseball but in but in basketball and in places where these other rules are are coming into play to to quicken the game or to lessen the the time that a player's out there. At one point, you can even go back in in the history of this podcast and 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 hear me. You know, I am a baseball purist, and I th- and I think there's something to be said for the people that that fall in love with sports or fall in love with anything. You fall in love with it for reasons other than the game takes three hours for reasons other than, Oh man, there's so much time in between pitches. I mean, it's great to see it speed up, but, but there is a risk I believe in if you're, if you do too much that it, that it takes away the heart of the game or it takes away the essence of the thing that the most loyal fans fell in love in the first place, because a lot of these things are in service of trying to gain new fans that may or may not stick around. 
Right. And so, and so for me, the biggest concern is, is yeah, I mean, the instant replay, some people had a problem with it when it came in in 2012, but we barely talk about it. You might be right, you know, and some of these things we might not talk about a couple of years from now, but I worry that if we keep going in the direction that some of these rules are coming from, not just in baseball, but in other sports, you're going to, you're, you're going to do more damage because you're going to start losing some of the more loyal fans that fell in love with it for, for reasons other than, you know, time of game and for in service of some casual fans that are like, Oh, it takes 15 minutes less now. Let's, let's, let's watch it. You know? Yeah. Uh, honestly, instant replay, probably the best addition to baseball. Uh, and I, I wish they had that in the minor yeah. leagues. And this goes back to, you know, the automated strike zone and everything too. Human error doesn't have to be a part of the game. You could still have umpires, but human error from the standpoint of the umpires minimally affects their career as to where it could majorly affect the player's career that they are doing wrong. How, now, would, how, how would you see an umpire fitting in if they're still out there? How would you see them fitting in? In, in a situation where you have an automatic strike zone. Yeah, they'd I, have a mic. They'd have a mic in their ear. I was going to say, because you know. I, I don't know if there's a lot of people that are familiar with what that would look like. Yeah, they'd have a mic. They did that. They did some test. I think an indie ball. Uh, I think they did uh, the test of the automatic strike zone. Um, so, so what you're saying is they would still be on the field making the ball and strike calls. But they would not. They would not be the ones using the discretion. They would. It would eliminate the human error aspect of baseball. They would still have a purpose. There's still rules that need to be enforced. Right. However, their job would become a lot simpler. But I, I'm okay with that. To be honest, like umpires should not have the power to manipulate a game, the state of a game. One, you know, they there's several instances where umpires have made bad calls and cost teams games. Armando Galarraga. Not yeah, and it doesn't have to be that way. Because yeah. that's not that's not the way it should be. If a team say like for example, you know, like going back to the game that I had, and I'm not talking about just me here, but right. Like say it's a division game, you're in game seven, three two count, bottom of the ninth inning, bases loaded, tie ball game and the umpire rings you up on a ball that's off the plate, you know, the game's over if they have the proper call. Now, who's to say that the other team doesn't win that game and move on to the next round because of one bad call from the umpire. So, you know, there's just a, a lot of, I'm sure there's going to, there'll, there'll be a lot of controversy surrounding the topic, but um personally, I think it's good to have consistency because inconsistency is what, gets in baseball players heads like oh I don't like as a hitter you know you're, you're going through the game and you're you're hitting and then you get rung up on a ball that you don't think is a strike and then you're replaying it in your head and I know it's everybody wants you to flush that at bat the previous at bat and go on to the next one but you know then you're second guessing yourself like oh was it a strike like I don't maybe I don't know like I don't think it was but it could have been so then right. you're second guessing yourself and then you go look at it the next day and it wasn't a strike and you were right but you know, how many at-bats after that did you have that, you know, you're still second-guessing yourself? you you got to be a little bit more protective of the plate because, you know, the zone, the zone's a little bigger. And, right, and I was, I was going to say, in, in the situation you mentioned where you get called out on a ball that's two or three inches outside the zone, you you go back 
to the dugout and you're in and, and you say to yourself, okay, I didn't like that, but that's obviously what this guy's strike zone is going to be. So then the next time you're up there, you see that pitch again that you know is not a strike, but you know, but but you know he called it last time. So you mm-hmm. might you swing and miss, or you swing and you make bad contact at a pitch you would not other, otherwise have swung at, but you but you know it's probably going to be called a strike, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's a big part of it. You know, you just I don't think human error has to be there. And, and going back to like the pitch clock and all that, uh, you were discussing that a couple minutes ago. You know, media and news outlets, they only cover the controversial stuff because that's what gets them views and that's what, you know, gets the people involved. They don't, you know, there's that one instance where the, the Braves player got rung up in the nine and the game ended. But there's also, I'm sure since spring training started, a thousand other instances where the pitch clock didn't affect the game, you know. So, it, it, you know, the rule is there. You just have to follow it. You know, I- I think, like I mentioned, you, you know, that human error doesn't have to be part of the game. The, the the umpire's job is to almost not be noticed. And so I think as long as we can go through and not notice that the pitch clock is there, and I think the, the more sp- time we spend with it, we won't. And so I think it it could end up being something like instant replay, like, oh, man, this is great, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 one I still have a problem with, and I, and, and I still – and, and and I'll let you go here in a second. Uh, the 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 one that I still have a problem with, to me, is the ghost runner on second. And I and and I get the purpose of it, right? I get mm-hmm. that it's to get out of there in in ten or eleven innings as opposed to fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, because sitting through fourteen, fifteen, sixteen is can be brutal sometimes. But yeah. I try to gauge the usefulness of it with there's a bit of of nonsensical to it as well from the standpoint of if you're up there as a pitcher and you're like I could lose this game because there's a guy standing there and I've pitched my my best game up to this point and if he scores we lose and I had nothing to do with him it's not really like all these other things from you know bigger bases might be safer from pitch clock speeding it up the ghost runner seems to me a thing a minute ago, something that could could be going too far because it's not something that actively happens in the game from the sense of, you know, if you put a pitch clock on there, the pitches are being thrown quicker. The bats are getting over quicker, but to just put somebody out there that, yeah, that did not, get where you're coming from, that did not you know, yeah. get a hit that did not draw a walk that had no interaction with the pitcher and have, have the outcome of the game be on that guy where the pitcher could come in and and get two fly balls that are outs and lose the game. And to me, that yeah. that doesn't seem right. No, I, I, I understand the your your standpoint on that. And I would understand the standpoint for a lot of people on that because that does have an impact on the game. Now, I'm not the biggest supporter of that. I am, but I'm not. So it does help speed up the game, which as a player absolutely plays into the longevity of the season so you know if you go out and you play a 16 inning game and it takes five hours and you play till one o'clock in the morning and you have another game and at 10 a.m the next day you know that is rough that's hard you're going home you're getting five to six hours of sleep you're coming back to the field nice bright and early probably going to have a show and go ordeal so you're not necessarily the most prepared for the next day um so it does play into the 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 athlete side of things a little bit, you know, speeding up the game. 
However, I understand where you're coming from as the the spectator. You know, it's unnatural to have that runner there uh, in in the extra innings. And the thing about it, though, too, is you know it's an equal opportunity, so both teams have to deal with it. However, the the home team probably has advantage of knowing what to do next. So, say the the visiting team goes out and they give up that run, the home team knows they have to score. If they go out and right. hold them, you know, the home team still has to score, but, you know, they could possibly leave a different pitcher out there. So it does play into the home team's advantage a little bit there. It is unnatural. However, I think the thought of the athlete at that standpoint is the biggest ordeal. So, you know, the longevity of the game, how long it goes, and, you know, keeping it from going 16 innings is, in my opinion, a pretty big pretty big deal i've played some long baseball games before we had that rule implication and i have not played a 16 inning game since the rule like i think i think you you used a good word there and it's it's you said it's not natural and i think that because a lot of these things you know even talking with you through the pitch clock has has changed my stance on on it and some things and 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 the more we understand about it the more that it makes sense instant replay that 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 made sense once we got through it uh, the pitch clock makes sense because the things that that enhances the things that those rules enhance are natural occurrences mm-hmm. of the sport. And whereas a ghost runner is not so, so with the fact that you see 14 and so 14 to 11 games go to 24, you see a pitcher in spring training, strike out a guy in 20 seconds. If, if these rules significantly speed up the game which it sounds like they're going to do you think they consider removing the ghost runner because that's that's still the more controversial of the rules that has that has come up i i know i'm i am 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 either fine or am coming around on everything else um but it's that ghost runner that just it, it just it doesn't it's unnecessary to me now yeah. now that these other rules are in place obviously from from the player standpoint not having to play 16 innings because you're getting out of there you know in 10 or 11 that's fine but with these other rules you know e- even a 16 inning game wouldn't take nearly as long if there's a pitch clock if there's so do you see down the line possibly the removal of the ghost runner because of the fact that it's not maybe as natural or well received as some of these other uh rules from the outside the possibly, you know, I, it's hard to say what they're going to do next. So these are rules that have to be agreed upon by the players as well. So it's not just like the MLBs throwing. In the minor leagues, they, they could do whatever they wanted. Now we're unionized in the minor leagues, so they can't. They have to run that by the the um, basically the MLBPA. Right. And um, But at the major league level, these rules all have to be agreed upon by the players. So – you know, if there's implications that, you know, the the ghost runner is second, that has to be agreed upon by both parties. So my standpoint on it, I don't know that they'll remove it just because, you know, 30 minutes off of the game, a nine-inning game would take about 45 to 50 minutes off of a, six, say, 16-inning game. You're still playing for four and a half hours probably, and you're still going to be out there. I see it more as an athlete from the athlete perspective, protecting our bodies. So, you know, baseball seasons are, are ruthless. They are every single day grind. 
And, you know, if you have an off day, if you're fortunate to have an off day, then it's usually a travel day. Um, and your body's not ever getting an opportunity to recover. And if you push that to a limit that it's not used to, that's where you increase the uh, possibility of injury. So right. if you're playing a 16 inning game one night and then you happen to go out and play a 14 inning the next night and then you still have a day game the next day. And I've had that happen. You know, we had, um, I'm trying to think what level it might have been low A. We played a super long game one night, played another long game the next night, and then we had a day game the following day. And I'll tell you, I felt like my body got hit by a truck. It was because sure. I played all three of them. And you know, it was borderline to the point where, like, I got to hit the brakes a little bit. I can't play 100% because I'm going to blow something out here. And, you know, so I see it from the athlete perspective of keeping the game at a reasonable length. And right. I know a lot of people, especially spectators, aren't going to see it from that because, you know, the, uh, the big problem with the separation between spectators and athletes is spectators look at athletes as, you know, almost like, indestructible invincible human beings when in the reality of it is we get beat up and for sure we need our breaks and breathers and some sustainability in the length of the games and without that you know we're just going to be pushed to the point of exhaustion and on the brink of injury uh for the following games so that's my outlook on it and i understand why there would be two different perspectives on it but i just protect the athlete at all costs Obviously, you know, I am more of a spectator than an athlete, <laughs> um, but I've never seen it personally. And I think there are several um, spectators that would that, that would say that it's I think it's more of a not so much a oh, well, athletes are invincible and the athletes make all this money. They should go out there and more of a these changes aren't being presented to us in a way that makes it sound like more than, Oh, these entitled players just don't want to play because mm -hmm. that, that leads me to want to ask you, obviously they're, they're two different sports. The load on your body are two different things. Where do you stand on load management in basketball? Because obviously they play less games. They play less in a week and you have these star players just sitting out. Ran, so basketball compared to baseball basketball obviously you're jumping a lot it's a lot more impact on your knees and your joints as to where baseball you're kind of level you're on the level ground you're more sprinting fast pace draw a line run that line uh basketball is very lateral and much harder on the joints so you know it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges in that perspective oh, for sure you're, for sure you're you're um as a basketball player, your body's taking a beating. Every time you go up, you're at risk for tearing something in your knee or spraining an ankle or pulling a muscle. Baseball, well, you're probably less inclined to tear a muscle in basketball, but more inclined to tear a, a ligament or a joint. Uh, and baseball, you're probably more inclined to pull a muscle, which would be obviously much less crucial to your career and less likely to tear a ligament. I would say going back to being how it's being presented that the that the MLB is doing a much better job and baseball is doing a much better job presenting stuff to fans than the NBA is. I think the NBA has done a, done a terrible job because it it ends up being like they've 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 limited the number of back to backs and so like you have some teams that are only playing twice a week and then you have players on top of that only playing twice a week sitting out. Yeah. 
And so for, yeah. from, from, from the fan perspective of, you know, and, and I feel like a lot of players understand this now it's more than it was. So I think, I think load management as big of a problem as it is in the NBA is, is going to start to go away because a lot of players are starting to realize like, because I think where, where there might be a disconnect between viewers and players, as far as, you know, viewers not understanding that players' bodies get beat up. I think sometimes at the highest level at the NBA, at the, in the NFL, that the the player can lose sight of the fact that the the resources to the viewer are much less and so they might can only watch their favorite players play two three times a year and if your player's sitting out fully healthy yeah you know, that that that's that's the problem in the in the NBA i think the MLB has done a much much better job of you know like if you're healthy, go out there and play. If you're not, explain that you're not and, instead of just saying, oh, I'm going to rest today. Because I think there's a huge, there's a chasm right now between the fan and the player in the NBA because of mm-hmm. they, they've already taken these rules to space it out and then players are still just sitting. You know, from my perspective, if I, if something is bugging me, you know, if you're 100% healthy and you're sitting out and you're refreshed, that's, that's one thing, that, you know is uh, I do understand that there are spectators that go there just to see that specific athlete. But um, if there's, you know, some complication or possible uh, foreseeing an injury, um, then I understand. But that's probably a managerial decision uh, alongside the athlete. And, you know, uh, I forget the athlete who it was, but uh, might have been Derek Jeter. It was a baseball player. But the way he said it, you know, I have people coming out to see me so he had this extremely long run of games played, you know, and he said there's, his reasoning behind it was, you know, people come out just to see me. If I don't play and there's people out there to see me, you know, I'm disappointing, disappointing the fan base. One more question. You're currently rehabbing an injury. How is that rehab going and what's next for you? You know, I'm still just grinding it out. Like I said, uh, I think in the beginning, I'm five months into the uh, rehab process. So I had surgery back in October. It's an eight to nine month recovery. So it's feeling good right now. Strong, starting to get back into the running activity. Uh, I've got a little bit more time, obviously, just continue down the path that I'm going with rehab, physical therapy, and keep going. And, you know, ultimately the goal is to get back to to baseball comfortably and uh, play. But, uh, you know, if that doesn't work out, I have backup plans. So it's it's no stress either way. Um, But ultimately, you know, the baseball's, been my life essentially for 20 25 years and you know to give that up is hard but I gotta do what's best for me and you know I'm doing everything I can to get back to it so hopefully it all goes well and I can get back out there and make a name you know get back to the get, get up to the big leagues exactly well Donnie we thank you for joining the podcast today we wish you all the best in your recovery and hopefully we can see you back on the baseball field soon I appreciate this man thanks yeah, good talking with you, Roman. Take care. And that was our interview with Donnie DeWeese. I want to thank Donnie again so much for joining us, wishing him all the best on his injury recovery and getting back on the field. That's all the time I have for you. Stay tuned next week for a very exciting interview with University of North Florida basketball coach Matthew Driscoll. You may remember him from the 2015 NCAA tournament when he was quoted as saying, ballers make plays and dudes are dudes. 
That's who we're interviewing on, on the next episode, and trust me, you will not want to miss it. I am Roman Gennaro. This is Empire Sports Talk. See you next time.